Hello and welcome to That One Case, the podcast where lawyers share stories of the cases that influence their careers. My guest today is Andrew Cooper, partner at Moen Cooper LLC in Jericho, New York. Andrew represents clients of all sizes, ranging from industries including universities, food and drink, construction and healthcare. And on today's show, Andrew tells us all about the story of a doctor who was hounded by the federal government into giving a guilty plea. He shares why this case in particular meant so much to him as a lawyer and explains why guilty verdicts don't always mean a complete defeat. Well, this this was a really long time ago. I say really long. Probably um, uh, early uh, 1991. Um, he was a pretty successful neurologist in a very competitive market in, uh, in, in, in Southern California. And, um, you know, he somehow ended up on the radar of the federal prosecutors. Uh, and and um, it's easy enough if you want to find a, a doctor doing something wrong, you look at, uh, at billing and, and coding and things like that. So they investigated him. He became paranoid and delusional. He was checking everything in his office from the, from the door handles to the light fixtures because he thought they were bugging his office. Um, ultimately, threatened him with uh, you know, money laundering against his wife and his family. And he felt compelled to, uh, to plead to, to take a guilty plea. Um, basically, the argument was that he was billing for uh, uh, what's called EMGs, which is a neurological test. And based on the number of tests he was performing in a day, they believed it was literally and uh, physically impossible for him to have done those tests adequately. So they decided that he was billing fraudulently. He, he pled guilty um, and was awaiting sentencing when he moved to New York to continue practicing um, medicine. I represented a medical uh, healthcare company that he went to work for as a neurologist and met him. He told me his story and he, he asked and insisted that he didn't do anything wrong and didn't understand uh, what he was pleading guilty to, which is really hard to believe. Um, it's, it's one of those areas and one of those um, projects where most lawyers would turn it away. The, the possibility of, of vacating a guilty plea based on the elocution, which is usually very, very specific and tedious, where a judge will inquire as to whether you fully understand and comprehend uh, the, what you're pleading guilty to. Um, and the other fear is that because you're in federal court, you don't want to get sanctioned for bringing what would be perceived as a frivolous motion to vacate. The success rate on motions to vacate guilty pleas are a fraction of 1%. So it was a pretty daunting task. And tell me, this was, did you say this was uh, 1990? It was, uh, sorry, let me back up. Probably late 90s, not early 90s, my mistake. I, I don't know how old you are, Andrew, but I'm gonna assume this is kind of fairly early in your career, is that? Uh... Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I've probably been practicing maybe seven or eight years um, at the time. Um, maybe a little longer. I want to say it was probably closer to uh, 90, uh, 97, 98, 99, maybe 2000. So what made you take this case on then? Because I mean, I, I imagine you figured this was going to be a tough battle, right? Like, that's not an easy thing to take on. And you, you said like many lawyers would have passed it up. So what, what made you kind of choose to, to go go with it? Um, I, I believed I believed the doctor and the client. Um, I, I truly believed that he didn't do anything wrong. I looked at the uh, information he provided, which was included a film where he performed the EMG test um, and, and had it analyzed. And the person who did the analysis said he performed it adequately. They showed that to the prosecutors. But what I've also learned 
in part because of this case is that once you're in the crosshairs of the federal government, um, you're, you're, you're actually guilty until you prove yourself innocent. You're not innocent until proven guilty. So I thought that he needed, um, he needed somebody to champion his cause. And, um, and I felt that um, as a lawyer, although you don't really think about it, on some level we are duty bound to try to um, effectuate justice. And, um, and, and, and so that's why I took it. Um, we, I, had, uh, I brought another attorney in who happens to be a cousin of mine who was living and working in Los Angeles at the time. We, uh, we hired a psychopharmacologist to do an analysis of the medication that the client was taking at the time of the plea. Um, he formulated an opinion as to whether or not the client was capable in light of the medication he was under and taking, uh, capable of fully understanding and, and allocuting uh, in a plea. Um, and we then made a motion uh, to vacate that plea before the judge that actually accepted the plea. And this judge also developed uh, a, a pamphlet or manual for plea elocutions. Um, it was a judge in the, in the, uh, the Southern District of California, a uh, very well-known, well-established, very fair, reasonable judge, a longtime jurist. And we basically uh, were arguing that he missed something. He didn't recognize that the medication that the client had indicated he was taking would actually impede his ability to uh, voluntarily uh, take the plea. And um, we set for hearing. And um, we went out, I went out to California. The client actually didn't, uh, didn't attend with us and we were chastised briefly for that fact. Um, but at the end of the day, after, the, after a, a very lengthy hearing, the judge actually did not grant the motion to vacate, which was disappointing until he uh, stated uh, that he intended to downward depart under the sentencing guidelines, which are the guidelines or rules that govern uh, what sentence is imposed based upon a certain classification and levels. He downward departed in a way that made the client, our doctor neurologist, eligible for straight uh, home detention house arrest effectively. So he gave him a house arrest for, for uh, I believe it was three years, imposed a significant component of, um, of uh, uh, he had to provide certain, a certain number of hours of uh, services. Um, the judge indicated he didn't want to warehouse a doctor who could provide services to the general public. And uh, that was the sentence. So despite the fact that we didn't win the motion, we, we effectively got him to a place where he could survive, didn't have to go to prison, could continue to practice uh, medicine. And within ultimately less than two years, he was able to perform sufficient number of community service hours that we were able to go back to the judge and actually ask him to waive the balance of the, the uh, home detention. So while not winning, um, it was effectively a huge win um, and, and the question you asked is a defining uh, case. While it is not the greatest success I had in my practice areas, I don't necessarily or generally handle criminal defense. I do some regulatory licensure, some defense for, for mainly doctors. But this was truly, um, for me, the most profound um, thing I've done as a lawyer because I truly, I feel that I was truly able to ensure that, that justice was done and served and that somebody who was innocent didn't, didn't go to prison for a lengthy period of time. Really cool.
Amazing. What What do you think was the again? Because you know, seven or eight in, years into your career, so relatively early on, what were the the main sort of lessons you took away from that kind of experience? Do you think? I, I didn't enjoy criminal defense. <laughs> okay, um, that's a good thing to know. <laughs> I, uh, I I have my own you know philosophy. I understand everybody's uh, you know entitled to defense. Everybody's entitled to have their constitutional rights uh, preserved and protected. It's just uh, while I have done and have handled several cases after that. Uh, some pretty significant uh, criminal defense matters. Uh, it wasn't something I felt that I was comfortable doing as a matter of a, of a practice area. So I, in moving forward, I, I handled less and less of those types of cases than I would have had I not had this experience. That's interesting. What 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 if you have? Do you have any advice for a young lawyer, kind of making that decision about where their strengths are and what they want to focus on? Is there anything that you uh, you can impart on that front in terms of helping yourself to? I mean, is, is it just a case of learning by doing, and you're only going to know which areas that you you love until you try them, or is there anything else that you kind of learned along the way that maybe is helpful? Sure, um, I do have a unique philosophy on on the practice of law in in that regard, and in response to your question. First, if you have the ability to, or you have the talent and the skill set to do, go into intellectual property, I think intellectual property is a great practice area. Unfortunately, it requires a unique skill set and a background in sciences or engineering. But, but the, some of the happiest lawyers I know are lawyers who are involved in patent, both prosecution, meaning patent applications, and litigating, because it is a highly uh, complex area. It's unique in that everybody can't practice it. You have to be able to understand the concepts and ideas involved. Uh, the other thing I would say is if you have a passion for law, um, that is a passion for justice, um, there are opportunities on the defense side, in the federal public defender and the state defender's office, working in an environmental law firm uh, with, with a, in a public interest setting where, uh, or for other social causes, um, having a passion for the practice of law, being able to apply your skills in a way that fulfills you every day um, is, is, a, is, a, is a unique opportunity. But the law in and of itself uh, builds you into a person that has uh, a diverse, unique skill set like no other. We have business background and experience because of the commercial work we do, the transactional commercial work we do. Um, we have human resources abilities that nobody would normally have because we work in labor and employment and, and coordinate with human resource departments. So law will, if you allow it, if you're eclectic enough in your practice, over time you will develop a high level of expertise in multiple practice areas, which down the road can convert to almost any other opportunity. For example, you can go in and be a CEO or COO or CFO of a major corporation because you can see all the component pieces. You've experienced the component pieces um, and it gives you opportunities to, for advancement. So I would say follow your passion and your dreams. The caveat being if you have a unique skill set and ex expertise, I highly recommend going into intellectual property, taking the patent agent exam and learning how to help people develop their concepts, products and ideas into marketable opportunities. I think Andrew's advice of following your passion is spot on. And given the number of happy attorneys we've spoken to who love the niches they work in, it seems there really is a specialty out there for everyone. 
So my huge thanks to Andrew for sharing his story with us today. If you want to find out more about him and Moen Cooper LLC, you can find all the links in the show notes over at thatonecase.com. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please do share it with someone you think would also find it interesting. All the details on how to follow the show and listen are at thatonecase.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you again next time as Robert Brown tells us the story of That One Case. Thank you.